When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Yeah, it's Heard Tell Show Monday, January the 24th. Year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll on as we get towards the end of the first month of January. So glad you're with us. Hope you all had a great weekend. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. A uh, lot to cover on the show today. Uh, Sarah Montabano, from Young Voices. We're going to talk to her a little bit about COVID on campus. Uh, the little bit not as talked about, uh, we talked a lot about K through 12 and the effects of the COVID pandemic and the various things that have happened on that part of the education system. We're going to talk a little bit more about post-secondary uh, colleges and university, how COVID has affected them. Uh, also, she has an opinion piece out about some legislation that was in the infrastructure bill regarding DUIs, smart technology in car for DUIs, how that raises privacy concerns, how that tech is maybe not matching up with what the regulation is trying to do, and is that a good idea or not. So we'll talk to Sarah Montalbano a little bit later on the program, also in the show with a pretty funny story where the state of Missouri decided to put out uh, an all-points bulletin for the Joker from Batman. No, I'm not joking. Uh, also, we're going to talk about platforming and deplatforming and turn down the noise on social media a little bit when these folks want to have these big exoduses and boycotts from the major platforms. Uh, we actually have some data on how well that goes or more specifically how well it's not been going for them and how it turns out it's basically hurting the same group of cats back and forth. We'll get into all that in a little bit, but first, let's start overseas. Um, we've been talking a lot of domestic politics lately, but there's been some rumblings going on overseas, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we've talked about Russia. 
Uh, Russia and Ukraine are at the brink of crisis. They have been for a couple of weeks, but things are really getting cranked up now from the BBC World Service. Uh, U.S. orders families of embassy staff to leave. guess they learned their lesson. They're actually going to try this ahead of time for a change. Uh, the U.S. has ordered, quoting from the BBC, the U.S. has ordered the relatives of its embassy staff in Ukraine to leave amid rising tensions in the region. The State Department has also given permission for non-essential staff to leave and urged U.S. citizens in Ukraine to consider departing. In a statement, it said that there were reports that Russia is planning significant military action against Ukraine. Russia has denied the claim that it is planning to invade Ukraine. The State Department has also warned people not to travel to Russia due to the ongoing tension and potential for harassment against U.S. citizens. That last part is in quotes from the bulletin. Quote, there are reports Russia is planning significant military action against Ukraine, an advisor for the State Department said. A State Department official told the AFP news agency that the embassy will remain open, but repeated warnings from the White House that an invasion could come at any time without further warning. They, they said that the government will not be in a position to evacuate U.S. citizens in such a contingency. Boy, did we learn that lesson the hard way in Afghanistan, but I digress. The head of the military defense alliance, NATO, has warned that there is a risk of fresh conflict in Europe after an estimated 100,000 Russian troops amassed on the Ukrainian border. On Saturday, some 90 tons of U.S. quote, lethal aid, including ammunition for the frontline defenders, arrived in the Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that the government was putting together a quote, series of actions that would figure into President Putin's calculus, including beefed up defenses in Ukraine. With more military assistance, Russia has seized Ukrainian territory before when it annexed Crimea in 2014. Let me pause there. Uh, annex is a nice way of saying it. they lied, swindled, and invaded Ukraine, a sovereign nation, and took over the, the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, we'll get back to that in a moment. Ever since, Ukraine's military has been locked in a war with Russian-backed rebels in the areas to the east near Russia's border. An estimated 14,000 people have been killed fighting in this region already since 2014. On Sunday, the UK Foreign Office, that's roughly equivalent to the U.S.'s State Department, uh, accused Mr. Putin of planning to install a pro-Moscow figure to lead Ukraine's government. UK ministers have warned that the Russian government will face serious consequences if there is an incursion. Again, that's from the BBC. Listen, uh, we can't get into this too much because we're not sure what's going to happen yet. Uh, not to be all doom and gloom, the Ukraine military is much more formidable than it was in 2013 when the Crimean invasion happened, uh, and Russia has to worry about losing face on the battlefield. They can't afford to do that, so maybe Putin will slow down. Uh, we will see. We should not doubt that they will try to do something bad here because we know Putin is an evil, murderous thug dictator. For some reason, there is a group of commentators, both on the left and the right, who want to just dismiss this with a hand wave saying, well, Ukraine's none of our business. And if you dare bring up that it might be a little bit of our business, they will start screaming immediately. Why don't you send your sons over there to fight and other duplicitous stuff, answering a question that nobody's asking. Nobody's saying that the U.S. should be directly militarily involved there here. And the fact that they jump straight to that gives their game away. Um I don't care why you spout straight Russian propaganda, but if you're spouting straight Russian propaganda like the Ukraine is just an internal matter or that Russia has any justification whatsoever for invading a sovereign nation, a sovereign nation, by the way, that gave up their nuclear weapons because the U.S. and other people promised to protect them from Russia, 
go read your history so you know what you're talking about on these matters, would you please? Uh, yes, it is our business because it destabilizes the entire world. A sovereign nation should never be under the threat of another nation, especially murderous thug dictator Vladimir Putin. So there's going to be a lot of noise on this in the coming weeks. Make sure we turn down the noise on it. Uh, so we don't want to comment too much because we don't know what's going to happen yet. But we need to keep an eye on it. And we also need to keep an eye on those commentators who think that a country being invaded and taken over is A-OK with them because it doesn't bother them. That's not the right approach. If you're going to be for freedom and continue the principles of the most freedom possible for the most people we can get it to, invasions are bad. War's bad, too. I hate war. I hate war in the way that only somebody that's been there and seen that and done that can hate it. But sometimes you do have to fight over things. And it looks like the Ukrainians might have to fight Russia yet again. They've been fighting them on the down low for quite some time. And the best we can hope now is that cooler heads prevail, or more importantly, maybe Putin can be deterred from invading Ukraine. It'll be a bloody mess if he does. And I don't trust our current leadership to be able to handle the crisis. We have a lot more herd tell coming up. We'll get to it all right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. You ever notice every periodically on social media, uh, folks get upset or some big name personality gets banned or somebody gets mad and they insist that they're going to leave, insert social media company here forever and go off and do their own things. This has happened a couple times. So let's talk about this for a little bit because the Washington Post came out with some actual data on this and I wrote about it in ordinary-times.com. You can seek it out. We'd appreciate it. Uh, title of the piece, Politically Hot-Shotting Alternate Social Media Goes About As Well As You Could Expect It To. Ever notice how every time there's some big-name banning of a personality from a social media platform, there's a loud and public cry for there to be an exodus from Twitter or Facebook or whatever platform to a newer, friendlier, alternative platform. But those folks are not outright banned, never seem to really go away. And those said evil platforms, they supposedly left for the green, green fields and total freedoms of Gab or Gitter or Rumble or Parler. Hey, remember Parler? All three times we were going to have a Twitter exit to Parler uh, or whatever the next alternate social media was going to be. Well, now we got some data on that and it tells us exactly what we expected. For the most part, it is the same herd of folks moving back and forth. Large spikes in users initially, then the long, slow decline as no one else ever seems to join up. Washington Post data says this. The data helps strengthen the case for supporters of deplatforming who argue that banning the accounts of people who known for distributing lies can have a powerful impact on their ability to win mainstream media attention or political influence. It also calls into question whether this new and polarizing online ecosystem, possibly to be joined soon by Trump's long-promised social network, Truth Social, can build a sustainable business solely by catering to a radicalized right. The niche sites continue to pull in Republican leaders and right-wing flamethrowers who could lift the site's online prospects. But for the most part, the deplatformed accounts, their brief jump after Trump's ban accounted for more than 80% of their followers for the entire year. The analysis found, while some saw tepid growth in recent months, others watched their follower accounts shrink, an indication that some fans might have decided to tune them out. Darren Linville, the lead researcher at Clemson University's Media Forensic Hub, 
said the sites have struggled to gain attention because their focus on right-wing rabble-rousing has pigeonholed them into one side of the American political debate. So much of social media, he adds, isn't political at all. Its biggest platforms are loaded with jokes, pop culture, cute photos, and other distractions that make up most of people's daily media appetites. Bringing a robust social media platform requires multiple perspectives so that you can have lots of different conversations happening to bring in lots of different kinds of people, Lenville said. Again, this is from Washington Post. Right-wing platforms are one-trick ponies. They only going to, by nature, appeal to the type of person they are branded to appeal to. And there's only so many people in that world. Telegram says it has more than 500 million active users worldwide, nearly half who joined in the past two years. But that massive growth is not always translated to its right-wing users, the analysis found. Lynn Wood, the attorney general who boosted Trump's failed legal push to invalidate the 2020 election, was banned on Twitter after urging his 1.2 million followers to, quote, pledge your lives, end quote, and fight on January 6th. On Telegram, he gained 800,000 followers within the next month, but his audience peaked in June and has since slid to 730,000, about 60% of his lost Twitter audience. Telegram deletes accounts that have been inactive for six months or more, which could attribute to the decline. Wood still posts hundreds of Telegram messages every month. The Twitter clones Gab and Gitter and the YouTube clone Rumble focuses more directly on appealing to a conservative audience, but they also have struggled to maintain the momentum for their biggest far-right stars. On Gab, the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who, by the way, just as an aside, is a despicable human being, who joined Gab in 2016 and was banned from mainstream media sites in 2018, went from gaining roughly 25,000 followers a month in the first quarter of 2021 to adding about 1,000 followers a month for the rest of the year, the analysis found. On Rumble, One American News, the video network known for its pro-Trump conspiracy theories, saw its its subscriber count more than double to roughly 750,000 in the months after Trump's Twitter ban. But its growth has leveled off since, settling to about 900,000 subscribers today. The network's president didn't respond to a request for comment. The network's biggest distributor, DirecTV, plans to stop carrying it in the spring. Uh, by the way, the conspiracy theories on that one, they're just out of contract. Uh, so they're not pulling them off the air. It's the end of the year, end of the contract, and they're not renewing it. Uh, back to Washington Post. Gitter's chief, former Trump advisor Jason Miller, said he is not at all worried about our business long term. Why would he be? Adding to legacy platforms have bigger user bases, but they treat them with total disdain. Gab's chief, Andrew Torba, said the findings are, quote, irrelevant to Gab's growth overall as a free speech platform for all people. Pro-Trump commentators, he added, might be struggling in the alternate platforms because of Trump's defense of the coronavirus vaccine. Quote, his nonstop vaccine shilling has turned many of his supporters off completely, Torba said. That's all from the Washington Post. Now back to what I was writing. There's a pro wrestling term for this, hot shotting. You do something that will hit big in the short term to match a moment of opportunity and to get extra attention. Timing, and the thing about hot shotting is, it almost always is detrimental to your business in the long run because you just gave away something quick and cheap instead of the longer, sustained, slower monetization and use of that same thing. The data shows that, sure, the big, splashy social media outrages over bannings, deplatformings, or general-purpose boycotting get these platforms a spike, but that's it. There's no carryover, no continuation. 
no growing of an audience. It's the same group of diehards over and over again, going back and forth between platforms. That's a tough business model to work off of, especially that particular group that is not only issue specific, but persnickety and petty about a multitude of things that will also make them take their social media ball and go home again. Good luck hurting those cats, Gitter, Rumble, Gab, and whoever else chases the audience capture of the disaffected and perpetually aggrieved social media right. You're going to need it. That was me writing in ordinary-times.com. You can read the whole thing. Uh, long story short, what the data showed was that if you cater to just a specific set of people for a specific reason, you don't have a lot of retention. It's one of the things we do here on Hertel. Uh, we're very proud of our own principles. We're not going to ever swerve from them, but we're also not afraid of anybody else. We bring on people from all points of views, from all across the spectrum. We talk about all sorts of different things. I know in my own social media, I spend a lot of time talking about food and humor and football and soccer and whatever else I want to. You have to have a wide berth and a wide swath. Bringing in new people often comes from those things, not just me talking about culture and politics all the time like we do in the writing and on Hertel. Same reason with Hertel. At the end of the show, we usually try to do something lighthearted. Sometimes we cover food. Uh, today, we're going to talk about meatloaf a little bit because, uh, no, not the food. He, the singer passed away over the weekend. We're going to talk about that a little bit because it's good to balance these things. Part of your perspective on culture and politics isn't just your understanding of culture and politics. It's your understanding of everything else in the world. You don't ever want to get pigeonholed. You never want to get at the bottom of the information funnel that we're always talking about. If we're going to be successful in turning down the news cycle noise, you have to stay out of the news cycle every once in a while. Got to touch some grass, as the kids say. Got to go outside and take a walk, as my dad would always say. Clear your head. Think about the good things in life, food and family and faith and whatever else it is that brings you joy. And then come back to the culture and politics, which will give you a better perspective. The data that shows that herd of diehards just running back and forth shows that their obsession over a very small percentage of an audience and chasing it constantly just means that you're never going to do anything but chase them. It's better to have standards. It's better to have principles. It's better to have a guiding principle on what you want to be in media because the audience may come and go, but you should be able to be in the same spot consistently for them to always be able to find you. That's what we try to do here on Herd Tell. You won't always agree with us. Uh, you may not like some of the viewpoints some of our guests have. That's all okay. But you know where we're at. We're going to listen. We're going to talk. We're going to discuss things because we live in a big pluralistic society in America and not everybody agrees. And that's okay. We're not going to lose our bearing over it. We're not going to scream and shout and demand everybody else has to be quiet. We'll hear them out and then we'll fight our corner accordingly. That's the better way to do these things. That last term there, audience capture, I'll bring to your attention. That's where a lot of folks get in trouble, both consumers of the media and content makers and newsmakers in the media. If you're chasing an audience, you're always going to wind up in trouble. Back when I first learned how to fly airplanes in flight school, my instructor got on me. He's like, you got to stop chasing the needle. And what he meant by that was if you're trying to fly an absolute perfect heading all the time, it's never going to work because there's no such thing. And you just end up chasing the needle and the needle bounces back and forth because you're trying so hard to stay just right where you want to be. It's not healthy for anybody. And it's not really possible. A lot of people chasing the needle over audience capture and they're chasing the needle over specific culture and politics. And unfortunately, 
they miss a whole lot of other important stuff going on. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Ah, Hertel Show, welcome back. Uh, returning guest new to this program, but we've talked before on radio and other media, Sarah Montalbano, another Young Voices contributor. She's up in Montana, beautiful God's country up there. She's written all over the place, Wall Street Journal, Washington Examiner, uh, has done work with the Alaska Policy Institute. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, sick like you've been sick because we've been trying to do this for about two <laughs> weeks now and finally got it on the books because we she was sick and I was sick and then she was sick and then one of my kids was sick. So thank you for your patience, mm-hmm. ma'am. Uh, let's just start right there. Uh, you were writing in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you were part of a, a symposium, I guess you would call it, um, of college students. I don't think we've talked enough uh, in this COVID pandemic about the college age kids. L- let me do a little background here real quick. We've spent a lot of uh, characters and in ink for the last decade or so about the generation that went through college during the housing crisis in 08, 09, uh, 2010, and how those folks who are now in their 30s and closer to their 40s, how that crisis affected them. I really wonder with two years of COVID, the college age generation right now, how that's going to affect them going forward, both in their politics and their culture and how they see things. I, I don't see any way that wouldn't be a major effect on them, is there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went into college in 2018. I had one normal year, and then I had two COVID years, and now we're finally just starting to get back to normal, but we still have to wear masks. I think most college students are over it at this point, uh, including myself. What do you think, um, because college is a formative experience, uh, everybody still has that kind of classical, oh, you go live in the dorms for two or three years, that kind of thing in their head. We understand college is much more diversified now with online learning, hybrid learning, these things. But that time period, that 20 to 25, 18 to 24 time frame, it is formative. What do you see in your you know, age group cohort? What do you see that they are learning from this COVID thing, how it's changing their worldview, not just politics, but just their worldview in general, because this has to have had a massive effect. Absolutely. I think the thing I've noticed most is that people are uncomfortable talking to strangers. They stay very close to their friend group or the people they know in their classes, and they are just not willing to embrace the college experience anymore if it's not something that can be guaranteed to be safe from COVID. I think all the fun things that universities do have just been really awful with COVID adaptations. And I personally don't feel like I got as much out of the learning experience because we've been getting a break for two years, really. Um, Just just not rigorous standards anymore. And I'm really worried about what uh, people going into the workforce after this from this kind of college experience. I'm worried about that. What do, what do you think? Uh, let's let's back up a little bit. When the we understand when the pandemic first started, like nobody knew what was going on, so we had a lot of shutdowns and they pulled people out of class. All this, especially on college campuses, there seemed to be a real attitude of we have to do something even before they really had the data and the science catching up. And I understand why, because there's a lot of money involved. 
Uh, these are big budget institutions that are very thin budgets, despite the big dollar signs when you have to shut them down. We know enrollments are dropping. There's the greater thing of the education, higher education bubble. We keep waiting to maybe burst in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things kind of combined here. What is it, do you think? Was it a mix of the just do something crowd? Was it overbearing? Was it some people not doing enough? How did it come off from the administrations of the schools? Maybe not your school in particular, but you can go there if you want to. How did that come across to the students, the college age kids of how their immediate, the people that are in charge of them, because it's a college environment, how they handled this crisis in the beginning? Yeah, I think a lot of students feel cheated out of a normal college experience right now. And that's the case for more than, you know, 400 institutions that are requiring COVID vaccines in order to attend. A lot of students feel like they don't have any choice in completing their education if they don't want this, or they might feel coerced a little bit into it. My university has actually been very understanding. Um, We've had a mask mandate of course, uh, as most institutions have, uh, but there's not really been any talk of, of vaccine mandates. And the campus has tried to be very normal. Uh, I think a lot of colleges are putting classes online when they shouldn't be just because now they know they can. Um, but my university's tried very hard to keep classes in person. How does that, how has that been landing with the students though? Because we all know uh, the pushback on that is always, well, you already have a laundry list of vaccines you have to be up to date on to attend college, the same as with uh, secondary school, K through 12. What is it about this specific one? Was it the speed of it? Was it just that it's a new thing? Um, it's college kids. Was there just a little element of rebellion in there, which is normal <laughs> for that age group? What do you think it was that they had a pause about that? Because, And is it really as much of an issue as we're talking about online? Because it seems like that may be something that's getting talked about more than it's actually getting acted on. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think a lot of college students, of course, want to rebel a little bit against this. Um, but I think also a lot of them, you know, I've heard stories from people who took the first and second COVID vaccines and had some unpleasant side effects and didn't want to continue to boost in order to continue their education. And now that's, you know, the policy of most administrators is to say, well, you took the first one. Uh, so, you know, you're, we're going to need to see doctor's notes and medical exemptions and stuff like that. Um, I think it's probably not as big of an issue as the internet is, is making it out to be. Um, but I think for a lot of college students, it's a very real concern because they've entered into this college experience, a lot of us before COVID, and um, it, we would just like a normal experience. Yeah, talking to Sarah Montalbano, another of the great young voices, contributors we get to work with. Um, staying on the college campus thing for just a second, when you wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, you made an interesting point, I thought, about talking about personal responsibility when it comes to COVID. There's been a conversation with higher ed in general about what they actually teach you. And I don't mean in the classroom. I mean, culturally, how to get along with people structurally, which is a big part of college, you know, learning how to live on your own. Did universities, in your opinion, did they do a good job of using this as a teachable moment for personal responsibilities? Or was it just so much reaction and scattershot that you think people might have been turned off on? hey, the people in charge of us might not really know what they're doing. They just seem to be flailing a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think for most college students, it's the latter. Uh, it really seems like there is just 
a push to do something rather than, you know, considering it. Uh, my university actually had a very funny moment before the fall 2021 semester. Um, the university president asked everybody in a mass email and said, we're not going to mandate wearing masks. We're just asking that you do this in all the classrooms. And I think from my observation, it was about 50-50. And we, uh, for the first two days, and then a mask mandate was instituted the next day. And so I think what universities are trying to do is avoid having to make these decisions for students, but students at this point kind of either need to be told to do it or won't do it at all. We'll follow their personal preferences. You used a real old school term in your Wall Street Journal article, and I love it because it's a good country term. I knew I understood <laughs> it immediately. Busybody administrators. Um, mm -hmm. The thing about these administrators, though, and it's it's only fair to bring up for folks is these students, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars. They're going into debt. Uh, they feel pressure to be at these institutions. How much does the overall environment of higher education right now play into when you have a, in your words, busybody administrator that seems to be doing a whole lot of do something without a whole lot of accomplishing? Mm -hmm. There's so much resentment, I think, on campuses right now because students came in expecting a normal college experience, were promised this in some cases, saying, no, we'll be back in person. And then with this Omicron variant thing, a lot of schools have gone back online, and that's very frustrating for people putting themselves into debt. Um, and it just really feels like babysitting. It feels like the administrators know what they want us to do and are going to make us do it, whether we like it or not. We're not going to get a normal college experience. Um, yeah, it, it's they're busy bodies. Yeah, I stand and, by that. And they're not <laughs> giving you a discount either for the lessening of service, but that's another matter no. for another day. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We're talking to Sarah Montalbano from Young Voices, uh, a college student and a published author, Wall Street Journal and other places. We get back. We're going to talk about another piece she wrote about DUIs and continue to talk about COVID right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're continuing our conversation with Sarah Montalbano up in God's country in Montana, uh, where I'm betting it's not very warm today. Uh, no, she just kind of shook her head. <laughs> 14 degrees. It, oh, it was it. snowing all night. <laughs> 14 is not a bad day up there, though, for not this time bad. of the year, though. No. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we went through Cheyenne in the middle of a winter one time. It was like negative 20 with the wind chill. It was ridiculous. Oh. Um, <laughs> You have written a piece, uh, it was a while back, but I think it's worth bringing back up uh, for the American Spectator. Uh, you were talking about the government in your car. Now, let's preface something. DUI is a horrible, awful thing. Um, we could talk all day about the criminal justice system, letting people on the streets that have three, four, five, seven DUIs. It's absolutely uh -huh. atrocious. Nobody wants DUIs. Nobody wants anybody on the road under the influence. However, in the infrastructure bill, they are now using technology in vehicles. Uh, just set this up for folks. What was actually in the infrastructure bill, what was passed, what it's supposed to do, and the idea of what they wanted to accomplish before we get into what we think it might or might not accomplish. For sure. Yeah. Obviously, DUIs are horrible. Uh, we don't want to see this. Um, the infrastructure bill passed a Section, Advanced Impaired Driving Technology, uh, it basically directs the Secretary of Transportation 
to issue a rule within three years that requires advanced impaired driving technology in all new vehicles. Um, in the language basically says either it can passively and accurately detect blood alcohol concentration, or it can passively monitor the performance of a driver. That's about the extent of what the bill actually says, and it leaves the implementation details up to the Secretary of Transportation. Yeah, now having with what we do, we read a lot of these bills. Uh, that's a <laughs> lot of wordy word, we call it. Uh, that's a lot of open-ended, <laughs> hey, we would like for this thing here to happen, which legally doesn't have a whole lot of binding. Um, <laughs> what's the danger of this going forward, or is this just kind of a gee, this would be nice sort of piece of legislation that doesn't really have any teeth in it, because when you get to the letter of the law, there is no letter of the law to the way this is specifically written. But clearly, mm -hmm. this is uh, kind of a marker for what they want to kind of go for in the future, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. And, and they're kind of punting it down the road. A few years, um, the Secretary of Transportation is supposed to issue a rule about the actual technology that is supposed to be included uh, within three years. And then I believe automakers have three years after that in order to actually implement the technology and put it into new cars. Uh, and so that could be as early as 2026. Uh, it could also be punted down the road for 10 years. And the Secretary of Transportation can say, uh, Congress, here's why we haven't been able to do this. The technology is just not there yet. And I think that's probably the best case scenario uh, for this kind of law. Now, the ambiguity here isn't just in the letter of the law, as we're kind of mm -hmm. facetiously calling it here. Um, law has to be written specifically. And when it comes to impairment, uh, there mm -hmm. is no federal universal standard for impairment. Some places it's 0.5, some places it's 0.8, some places it's lower. Uh, this is also a part of this problem is how are you going to have technology, which is data code? It has to be very specific. Uh, mm -hmm. The laws themselves for impairment aren't going to fit nice and neat into programming, are they? No, no, exactly. Like if I was going to try and drive to Washington in my car right now, I would pass through Idaho, which might have a different law. I would start in Montana, end up in Washington. That's three different kinds of laws. And so what I see happening is kind of a federalization of these kind of standards if this law uh, comes into effect. And then I think, secondly, we need to remember that impairment doesn't just mean drunk. Uh, it could be, you know, being drowsy or intoxicated by other substances, distracted, eating, using your cell phone, stuff like that. And those all have different laws applying to them, although obviously you should do none of them. Um, but th this technology could really have some strong practical implementation problems. Yeah. And you talk about uh, talking to Sarah Montalbano. This is a piece about uh, the in-car technology, tracking technology for DUI and other things that she wrote in American Spectator a while back. Uh, I didn't think of it this way, but I guess I should have. Anytime we're talking technology, of course, we're talking privacy concerns. You bring up an interesting point here is uh, there's a car and there's a driver and then there's the rules of the road, which is the government's. So you have three different distinct entities here. Who owns that data of you driving on the road? Is it you? Is it the car manufacturer? Is it the car because you own it? Or is it the road that the state or the federal government own? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really scary. And who gets to access that data? Uh, you know, can, will there be permanent logs? And, and this is the kind of thing I worry about as a computer science major. I understand that it's pretty easy to exploit software vulnerabilities. And I think the fact that these logs will be, there will be data collected by this software. 
Um, and that could be available to enterprising hackers. It could be available to law enforcement and the government. Uh, your automaker is probably getting it too. And you're probably the person that's going to be least able to view your data. Yeah. And talking to Sarah Montalbana, you brought up a comparison here that I wouldn't have thought of when it comes to your vehicle, but it made sense once I started thinking about it. But you talked about the ring doorbells and the fact that you have uh, now we've had situations uh, with police and law enforcement where they want the data from the ring doorbells. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. the murder case. I think it was about two years ago. Remember the the death in the hot tub and the uh, it was Alexa or Siri. I forget which one. I think it was Alexa. Mm-hmm. Uh, recorded the whole thing and they wanted that data. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of implications for law enforcement, which already has problems with uh, behaving themselves when it comes to search and seizure and data information collection. This seems like something that's going to open a lot of doors for law enforcement that's not going to have a whole lot of guardrails on it, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think what's most likely for the actual technology implemented is some form of camera trained on your face, watching for droopy eyes and eyelids, um, things like that, uh, combined with your actual driving behavior. Are you going outside of the line stuff like that? Um, and I think it's law enforcement would love to have a camera trained on every driver's face that they could access. And by its very necessity, this camera would have to be on all the time and could not be turned off. Um, and that's the kind of thing I think uh, is really scary, especially with the ring door bell cameras. The law enforcement has already shown themselves really enthusiastic to uh, get this information from cameras. This goes to a bigger question, but you are a computer science person, so I'm going to go ahead and mm-hmm. just go there with you. Uh, we we are getting ready to have a debate in our society about identity. This is really getting down when you're talking about this camera. Is do you own your own face? Do you own your mm-hmm. own identity? Um, so of course they'll say, well, this is, this is going to stop DUIs. We all want that. We've already predicated that, but Mm -hmm. do you have a right to not be videoed? And that's something that in our society, we're getting really close to needing to have a reckoning on. And I don't think people really recognize that, that I know I tell my kids, I have teenagers and adult children. Now I tell like, Mm -hmm. if you're not at the house, if you're out in public, just assume you're being recorded because that's the world we Mm -hmm. live in. But we haven't had that conversation as a society yet, have we, of do you own your own face and do you have a right to not be videoed yet? Because this is where all this technology is going one way or the other, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's a rich debate. And uh, you can probably guess what side of that I fall on. But as a computer scientist, you have to think, like, is, is an image of your face an agglomeration of pixels? Is it a stream of bits and bytes that just form your image? Or is this something more philosophically important than that? Is this just substantially and fundamentally different from any other sort of data that's collected about you? I think uh, digital identity is going to be something that uh, people that concern themselves with freedom and security and privacy rights, uh, I think that's the front line for the next, probably the last next decade or so. So we'll definitely <laughs> continue to talk about that. Sarah Montalbano, let folks know where they can find you. Uh, we cited your work in the Wall Street Journal, American Spectator here, but let them know your social media and what else you have going on. Absolutely. Uh, I am, uh, you can find my contributor page on the Young Voices website. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter under um, at Sarah Montalbano, though is a zero. Um, And you can also find my work as research associate on the Alaska Policy Forum website. They're a really wonderful organization if you are at all interested in Alaska. 
Yeah. Yeah. We had a great conversation with her about uh, things like road rights in uh, mm-hmm. public lands and uh, oil things and things in Alaska. Great stuff. Sarah Montalbano. Uh, thank you for the time. Thank you for the patience of waiting till we were both not sick anymore to talk about <laughs> COVID because that's just how the world works now. Um, and uh, you stay warm up there. We appreciate your time. We'll definitely have you back, ma'am. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, over the weekend, sad news in the music world, uh, Meatloaf died. The legendary rock and roll singer from the 70s had a massive comeback in the 90s. He was also an actor. Uh, he was also on some reality TV in more recent years. Uh, big personality, uh, big, big, over-the-top, loud, extravagant performer, real one of a kind. Uh, I unapologetically love Meatloaf's music. Uh, I find it fun. It's very polarizing. Of course, people either love it or hate it. Anyway, I took to the pages of Ordinary Dash Time to write about it. Um, and I wrote this, our friend Kristen Devine already explained Meatloaf so well during her deep dive into the auditory rabbit hole that is Jen Steinman's music that all that is required here is to repeat a quote, listening to a song by Jim Steinman is an exercise in musical gluttony. If a human being was a Steinman song, that human being would look pretty much exactly like 70s era's Meatloaf. With the passing of both Steinman in April of 2021 and now Meatloaf yesterday at the age of 74, the music world is a much less interesting place. I unapologetically love Meatloaf's music. The alarm on my phone for years has been the bombastic, full-throated pipe organ opening of Home By Now No Matter What, yet another of the seemingly endless Steinman-Meatloaf collaborations that ranged from the twisted adolescent ragers to ballads that could be soaring or touching and often both. Steinman's stereo musical imaging being that if less is more, imagine how much more more would be, found its perfect conduit in Michael Lea Day. Pitched in the abstract, the overweight, overdressed, overacting, perpetually sweating meatloaf Sounds like the furthest thing from a rock star, but on stage with the Neverland Express backing him and Steinman's musical insanity flowing through him, all those diverse parts form something epic. Even that term, rock star, was something he hated and would have pushed back against. Singer, yes. Actor, absolutely. Sex god, well, that's cringy, but by 70s standards, whatevs. But not rock star. He's performing, don't you see? Always, all the time, cranked to 11. An artist working in the often highly questionable imagery and unsustainable decadence of Jim Steinman creations the way Picasso used oils. Not that Meatloaf was exactly what you would call stable. His temper was notorious, with everyone from record executives to randos on his social media feed feeling the wrath of Meatloaf. Folks had heard about it, been told about it, heard the stories about it, but his stint on Celebrity Apprentice in which, among other things, Meatloaf unleashed a five-minute expletive field rage bomb on fellow lunatic fringe dweller gary Busey over paint immortalized it but for as fast as the fury came it went with meatloaf apologizing and pressing on like a beach town that had just accepts the occasional hurricane coming through and dutifully cleans up after without thinking too much about it pressing on was a theme for meatloaf the last few years had been very unkind with health issues wrecking his body to the point he could no longer perform When Rolling Stone came up visiting in 2018, he was using a walker, was in agony sitting or standing, but was as complicated and as interesting as ever. 
quoting from the Rolling Stone article, he takes a swig of sparkling water, eases himself back into his chair, and looks miserable. And miserable is not how you want me loaf to look. You want him to look all fat and sweaty, great masses of hair flopping back and forth, eyeballs bulging right out of their sockets, voice soaring to hammy operatic heights, more or less just as he did back in 1977 with the release of his debut album, Bad Out of Hell, and it's two great, mostly bombastic, over-the-top songs, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, and Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, which went on to sell more than 40 million copies and is now marking its 40th glorious anniversary, despite most rock critics hating it. (laughs) That's how you want to see him, a born-to-lose Texas redneck who teamed up with a genius-type songwriter-producer named Jim Steinman and beat the odds to become a rock star, a fine-bit-part movie actor, and a temper tantrum thrower of some renown. So it just doesn't seem right to see him like this. It's a real bummer, end quote from Rolling Stone. Back to what I wrote. Sure it is, but time is undefeated. Even as glorious and improbable a run as Meatloaf went on, Bad Out of Hell is one of the biggest selling albums ever, and it's improbable success of Bad Out of Hell 2 in 1993 that sold another 14 million albums, introduced Meatloaf Steinman's madcap musical universe of sex drums and way over-the-top rock and roll to a whole new generation, proved it wasn't any fluke. To succeed with pseudo-apparatic adolescent fantasy rock theater in the era of grunge was no small feat. The third bat out of hell couldn't make the trick of three, but hey, two out of three ain't. Well, you know. One critic wrote in Q magazine of that second bat record and the wonderful personal favorite of mine objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are that's the song not what's written on your actual rearview mirror your car that quote even the ballads are roman orgies of sound and fury objects in the etc is 10 minutes and 15 seconds long not necessary not necessary what are you new here This is Meatloaf distilling down with sweat, verve, and high octaves the vivid adolescent fantasies of Jim Steinman, cooked down on a spoon of rock opera and shot into a musical scene that to this day still doesn't quite know what to make of it. Meatloaf's music is polarizing. You either love it or hate it. But it was big, loud, over-the-top, excessive, wonderful, and impossible to ignore. And that ain't bad. At all. Meatloaf was 74. More heard tell right after this. We always try to end the show on a lighter note or something uh, a little bit lighthearted. This one is very funny. Uh, This is from uh, UPI, United Press International. The Missouri State Highway Patrol is reassuring the public that Batman villain Joker is not on the loose after a staff member sent an emergency alert mobile devices. Missouri residents received alerts from the Highway Patrol Tuesday warning citizens of, quote, Gotham City to be on the lookout for a purple and green 1978 Dodge 3700 GT with a license plate number, You Kid Me, a description that matches the vehicle used by Jack Nicholson in the 1989 film Batman. Of course, Jack Nicholson played the Joker. 
Law enforcement agency explained in a Twitter post that the clown prince of crime is not on loose Missouri, which does not have a place called Gotham City. This was meant to be a test message. There was no alert. The Highway Patrol tweeted. The agency said that the message was meant to be a routine test of Missouri's blue alert system. The patrol regularly tests the blue alert system to ensure it works properly when needed. During the test, an option was incorrectly selected, allowing the message to be disseminated to the public, the agency said. So if you are in the show me state, rest easy. The Joker is not on the loose, at least not today. Although you may want to respond and U.S. Senators just to make sure they're all in the right places since jokers may be on the loose in those particular instances. That'll do it for her tell today. We're sure glad you joined us. However, you're watching and or listening to the program. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, we sure appreciate you. We have seen really strong week over week growth. We know you're out there. We know you're watching and listening, and we so appreciate you. Uh, do us a favor. Make sure you share and like and leave comments those are really important things to us even though they only cost you a click we sure appreciate it we're doing something just a shade different on both platforms just to make sure you know what's going on uh, our interview segments the great knowledgeable guests that we have on her tell uh, we have a breakout of just that segment of the show without the rest of the show if you want to watch that or listen on the podcast we call it uh, her tell good talks it's a playlist on the YouTube page, uh, also now on the podcasting platform. So every morning, if you're subscribed, you will get her tell. And then in the evenings, you will get that breakout, her tell good talks. It'll be out on all the podcasting platforms and on the YouTube channel. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however you and yours are, we hope we find you well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more her tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.